personally, I look at some of our customers and I go, you would save countless millions of dollars a year if you would just tweak your maintenance program here or there. Welcome to Diesel Stories, where we sit down with professionals across the industry to hear about their journey. I'm Jacob Finlay, along with Chris O'Brien. Today, we're talking with Don Doty, Vice President, Roadside Operations and Vendor Relations at FleetNet America. All right, Don, welcome. Great to have you on. Thanks for having me. I appreciate uh, the opportunity to be here. I think, uh, and we got Chris here too. Yeah, good afternoon. Don, I think we first met two or three years ago. Uh, first over email and since then we've had the chance to meet in person and it's, it's, it's great to have you on. Likewise, I, uh, I've, I've enjoyed getting to know you and your company and the people that uh, work for you. So the, the partnership has been um, enjoyable. So uh, we want to get to the, we want to get to kind of your diesel story, basically what, how you got into the industry, but maybe back up a little bit. So you, you guys are in the Charlotte area. Is that, is that where you're from originally, Don? No, I'm I'm a transplant from the Midwest. Um, I, I grew up really in Nebraska and spent a good part of my life there. Um, and uh, kind of grew up in a middle of the road kind of family that uh, you know learned how to do things for themselves because they didn't necessarily always have the money to, to go out and um, you know put on a new roof in the house or windows or whatnot. Um, my dad was a um, technician and, and ran a shop. And that's it was from, for, from some perspective, the, the whole maintenance and mechanical um, world was bound to be. Um, and so just kind of grew up around shops and race cars and trying to figure out how to do things that, um, you know, to make our lives better, like I said, whether that be rebuilding our house or fixing our cars or whatnot. And um, kind of a, a, in some ways, it's a thing of the past, but um, pretty, pretty pleased with the, you know, how I, the way I grew up. And um, again, it's, it's a different world today, but um, it's been fun. Now, Don, did you grow up in the city or were you out in the, uh, you know, farm, farm country? Yeah, yeah we're part of Nebraska. So I, I grew up in a town called Grand Island, Nebraska. It's, um, I think today it's got a population of <clears throat> around 60 or so thousand people, but it's, um, it's surrounded by rural areas. So you can be, while it's a definite, by definition, a city, not a large one, it's, you can be anywhere in that city within 15 minutes and you can be, um, on a farm or, you know, fishing or hunting in the country or, or just hanging out in the country within, you know, 15, 20 minutes of, of your back door. So we got a good mix of, of both, um, rural and, um, city, if you will. And a lot of the rural towns around that, that particular uh, city kind of saw that town as, um, you know, their destination for retail and restaurants and whatnot. So, um, a lot of the, the smaller towns and rural folks were always traveling in and out of that city. Mm. 
we have some friends out out there. Um, <clears throat> they uh, they raise cattle just f- and they j- for for feeding their family. And I, did you ever get into that where you you know you, you had uh, animals that were raised for feeding the, the family and or buying? I didn't per se directly, but um, you know, growing up, I I worked with um, I, I always. My mom um, had a wide, a large social network, and she had many farmers that were, um, you know, she was in contact with on a regular basis. And somehow, I'd always get volunteered to go help um, rogue beans, or tassel, or lay irrigation pipe, or um, do things that um, are pretty normal to rural kids, and um, somewhat normal to you know people that aren't far from the, the, the farm, um, but are going to be pretty, uh, abstract or way out there for city folk. But, um, yeah, it's, that's, you know, my father-in-law is a seed corn salesman out there. Um, and, uh, he, he works directly with farmers and ranchers. And so I know that world well, but I've, I've not directly been employed in it, um, or, I shouldn't say directly employed. I have in, in small jobs and whatnot in, in my youth, but um, um, I don't know if that makes any sense to you all. Yeah, yeah, yeah it makes sense. So your dad, your dad worked as a technician in a shop. Your mom, uh, did she work? Uh, she did. She worked. She worked out of the home, um, and she actually worked in a in a bar and lounge restaurant kind of thing where a lot of locals would come in and. Um, that's why, you know, I say her social network was pretty wide. Right, right. Uh, and so that, that's, um, I often got uh, volunteered to do odd jobs and different things for all kinds of folks, um, you know, putting in sprinkler systems. That was something I did uh, for a number of summers. And my mom would um, volunteer me to do that for different people on the side. And yeah. Um, for money or we, just for, yeah, 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 yeah. For money. Okay. Nice. <laughs> so your parents yeah. up work for you. Did you, did you have ever sports in high school? I did. I, uh, I, I played football for a time, but really my, uh, uh, love for sport was in, was in the sport of wrestling. So I, okay. I wrestled from a, a young age and, um, all the way through high school and, um, was later recruited to, to, to wrestle and just didn't take that step. It's a difficult sport to, to do at any stage. And it's even more so at, in college because uh, you really got to be uh, committed to it. And, you know, the 24 seven nature of dieting and right. you know, training right. and whatnot doesn't work well for drinking beer and chasing girls in college. <laughs> right. Well, there's one thing that's for certain in high school, you did not pick a fight with a wrestler. <laughs> you get yourself hurt pretty quick. They're strong and they're grumpy because they can't oh, eat anything. They will throw you on the ground yeah. very quickly. <laughs> Learned so, my lesson yeah. in the ninth grade. <laughs> so Don, how many siblings did you have? Where, where'd you fit in? I was the oldest of two. Uh, we were a relatively, you know, family of four. My sister's, uh, she's five years younger than me. So um, while we're, close we we definitely were different um age age and and you know we didn't really run around on the same uh people so much and she was usually the um the bratty sister that was tagging along and later would go tattle on me for this or that and that's uh, that's how i remember uh, most of our relationship through our youth but um we've grown (laughs) 
What's that? I think that's all our sisters. I'm not sure. It's just your sister. <laughs> yeah, this is true. This is true. It, but growing up with that kind of an age difference, you just feel like, um, you know, black and white in terms of your your uh, relationship and things that you have in common or don't have in common. And so um, we uh, kind of had a rocky relationship. I mean, for, for in a lot of ways, but um um, we loved each other and still do, and our relationships got much better as we've, we've we've aged. So, yeah, it's amazing how that happens when you actually become adults and yeah. you can talk to your siblings on a different level. Yeah, you've got more common uh, ground with kids and the demands of career and homes and all that stuff, and you go, oh wow, the stuff our parents were doing was a lot harder than we thought, and. So yeah, it's, it is kind of amazing how you, you grow up and think about things differently. So you turned down the wrestling offer and did, did you end up going to going to college? What'd you do there? Yeah, I studied business, um, in Nebraska and I, I worked actually, um, through, through that time at a Peterbilt dealership. Um, my dad had some connections of course that, um, was that and that's really, I'm sorry. Was that in Lincoln? No, that, that too was in, in, uh, Grand Island. I, I went to school in Kearney, um, and Grand Island both later, um, as I was going to school and, um, just commuted back and forth. Gotcha. Um, actually had, um, you know, at a young age, I had a child and so it, it changed the way. So I grew up a different way than, than most people. So I had to not only support a child, but also, um, you know, become a, an adult and go to school and do the things that, wow. um, you hope you don't have to do all at once. Um, but it, in a, in a lot of ways it defined me and, you know, I'm, I'm very, um, happy with the, 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 the outcome and the challenges that I had to go through. Um, so, but yeah, you know, to get back to the, the Peterbilt thing, I, I worked at a Peterbilt dealership and partly because I had to have a job and I had to make things happen. And, and, um, I started there, um, really as a guy that was cleaning floors and, um, painting walls and taking care of the warranty room, um, as parts would get replaced on trucks. Um, you know, they, they got to be inventoried and, you know, cleaned up to a degree and inventoried and boxed up as best they can and, um, and all that stuff. And, 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 uh, that's, that was my, I did that for three, four, five, six months and then, um, transitioned from that into a technician. And I worked a second shift technician job for a number of years. And then later, um, transitioned into the, the parts side of the, the dealership. And so in a lot of ways I had an opportunity to do outside of selling trucks. I had an opportunity to do kind of everything you might do in a, in a dealership environment over about a five uh, or six year period uh, that I look back on fondly and, and connect to, to even today, a lot of those experiences and, and things, um, you know, I can use in my, my career as I sit here today at Fleetnet. Wow. How was it, how was it working in a dealership and going to business school at the same time? Were you, did anything drive you crazy about 
man, these guys need to run this thing different or was it just kind of reinforcing it? Um, I was still learning. I mean, I would say, uh, if I look back on it now, um, yeah, there's a lot of inefficiencies, you know, back then we were still punching paper, uh, clocks and we'd punch in on, and I'm sure lots of people do it today. Um, it's not, there's nothing wrong with it. It's just, there's a lot better ways to do it. We were, we were punching paper clocks and, um, at every, if, if we had a work order, that work order, you might have five or six line items to it. And so we're going to go and do our job and then run to the time clock and punch the time clock. And, um, so we can punch out of one job and punch into the next job and then go, go work and, and just a lot of wasted efficiency just in that, um, that, that function alone, um, that I know your system and other systems, uh, have since alleviated a lot of that. Um, but yeah, we worked a lot off paper and I can remember going, gosh, there's, there's clearly better ways to do that. Even in the parts world, all of that was, you know, somebody would look up a part and, uh, go find the part and write the part down on a, on a, a pick list and a quantity. And that was associated with that work order. And then, you know, at some point when the, when the work was done, they would, um, some other person would grab the, the parts pick list and they would marry that to the work order and type all of that into a computer. And, um, then again, marry the, the labor, all the time punches and, um, all that kind of would get put together in a final ticket. And, and, um, just you kind of look at that and go, wow, that's, a lot of back of the office kind of stuff, but um, there's clearly some margin being lost. And um, so you're thinking that, that process. Time. Oh yeah. Yeah. But you know, so you're, you're confined to the constraints that you're set, you're set with and, or the rules of the road, so to speak. And, right. um, but yeah, it's interesting to kind of look back at it. I, I'd love the opportunity. I haven't um, stepped foot in that dealership and I'll, really long time but something tells me uh, that if i did it there'd be a good many changes but a lot of that stuff would probably still be still um still be true today okay. may even have the same coffee pot there's a distinct smell of <laughs> coffee and grease and donuts uh, right just kind of burned into my uh into my mental vernacular right that was too funny. So did you get into uh, buying your own toolbox? You got the big, the, the, the huge arsenal of uh, tools. Um, I uh, luckily did not have to think, thankfully, because that was not, um, you know, my, my, again, my father's friend was able to help me out and I was able to kind of work out of his box. And there were some things I had to purchase, but um, you know, it was always, well, it was, generally always thought of as a temporary um thing for me or a stepping stone and and at that time i didn't necessarily um have a desire to to work in the industry um actually i was trying to work my way through uh, school and get into uh banking and finance which i later did and determined that i didn't enjoy as much as i thought i would and came back into the transportation services industry um not long after being in that world so i guess to some degree it kind of it, it well, for me it got in my it, i don't know that it was ever not in my blood if i think about you know being 
you know, young, even, even in diapers. Like my, I remember my father was a uh, crew chief of a, of a race car team. And I remember he'd work long days and um, him and his race car buddies would go and uh, roof houses to pay for the race car at, at, you know, during the summer months. And then once it got dark, they'd go work on the race car till whoever knows what time in the morning and he'd get back up and go to work at seven, you know, seven in the morning, how he did it. I have no idea outside of his love for it. And um, I can remember being young and going to racetracks and all over the Midwest and uh, kind of living that life. Um, and so not knowing that it was in some ways being ingrained on me and, and, and again, so, so now here I am um, vice president of a, um, company it, that operates in both U S and Canada. And, um, I look back and go, that's funny how that worked. And <laughs> I, I wouldn't take any of it back. I, I love it. I enjoy what I do and the people we serve and the challenges that we solve. And, you know, I think in a lot of ways, all of those experiences that I've just talked about, and clearly there are more, um, kind of help give me my own education, um, that might be beyond anything you might be able to get out of school, if, if that makes any sense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, just uh, growing up a little bit uh, similar to you, um, just the purchasing of tools, you're fortunate to, to put yourself through school. And if you had to buy your own tools uh, to, to, to make a living, uh, um, it's just amazing how much money gets funneled into the tools in a shop if, if the shop doesn't provide them. So, yeah, it's fortunate that you had a, a resource there because that that's a strain in itself. You're, that's if that's your way to make a living, uh, it could be uh, very costly. Yeah, I would say that's a, a very abnormal uh, reality that I was um, or, or opportunity that I was given to not have to do that. So, because um, you're exactly right, you know, you, you're making whatever you make in those days or even today, and you know, a good percentage of that is going especially as you're starting up yeah. is going right out the door and, and investment in tools so you can um be you know be the technician that you want to be and have the tools that you need to have to be efficient because as you both know or as you all know um you know the technician's pay is directly associated with their efficiency and got to have the right tool uh, to perform the job or, or just makes it so much easier in, in a lot of ways. Okay. So you, so you graduate in business and you get out of commercial repair altogether. And, uh, did you say it was banking first banking and finance? Yeah, actually, uh, was very motivated to get into the mortgage industry and, um, knocking on a number of doors while I was at the dealership trying to find a way to do that. That was in the early two thousands. Yeah. Um, when the, it, you can, yeah, when it went through its first anything. boom, if you will. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I enjoyed it. Uh, it was a much different uh, pace. It was behind a desk. It was working with people. Um, at that time. It was just coffee and donuts, no grease, right? <laughs> there you go. There you go. At that time, um, I don't know. It was a different, different world. It was a in some ways it was a little bit of wild west and the people that were at least in my purview that were making the most money were, um, I don't know. They, they were doing things maybe not the way I would like to have done them. Yeah, you, um, you ever seen the big short? I have. Yeah. Is that, was that accurate? 
Yeah, in a lot of ways. I mean, again, I was only in that indirectly employed in that world um, for a little over a year, and it was a hundred percent commission job. And I think they it, it's kind of designed in a way that sets you up for I want to go out and you know be a shark, and um, right. that didn't necessarily uh, fit with my nature. I mean, I'm competitive, and I can I can go make things happen, but I don't necessarily like to put people in a in a sitting here back and go sitting back and saying hey i'm gonna put this person in this house but i i can clearly see they can't afford it right um but but i don't care because it means i'm gonna make money and this is how much money and it just wasn't something i was always at in competition with my morals and ethics and not that i was doing anything unethical it just you're just barraged basically you're constantly having to like make the good choice over and over again yeah so consequently i didn't make a whole lot of money in that in that field um and and i tried and tried and tried and uh, well i I tried for a good solid year and um finally i I said you know what this isn't this isn't working uh the way i wanted it to work and at that point it was out of necessity that i i said okay i gotta get a i gotta get a real job and i picked up a a phone and called a, a friend that i'd known um uh, for a long while. And, and, um, he owned, uh, a business and oh, pretty significant business in the Midwest. Um, and said, Hey, I need a job. And all this, um, they actually, all this time you're still ahead, in I'm Nebraska, sorry. right? Still in Grand Yeah. Island. Same, same, same city. Gotcha. Um, so I, I ended up getting a job. They owned uh, an operation and, and maybe some of your listeners would be able to figure it out if they do the homework, but they own some um, truck stops in the Midwest, Nebraska, Kansas, Iowa, South Dakota, and um, some convenience stores in that same region. Um, but also some repair uh, over the road repair facilities and um, actually had a um, company that was a tank, um, a tanker, dealer and manufacturer and, and a trucking company. So I actually started in that world in the uh, fuel side of the business. They were, mm-hmm. they bought and sold their own fuel and transported their own fuel to their, tra- to their convenience stores and truck stops, but also did it for um, some of their competitors. And so I got to learn um, kind of the fuel and trucking side of the equation. We were oh. buying and selling fuel on, you know, the public exchanges. And, uh, we were also, uh, pretty early on in the fa- in that, in that world, we were involved with, um, you know, all the uh, ethanol plants in the Midwest and the biodiesel plants mm-hmm. where they've got significant, um, needs for natural gas. And of course we were, we were hauling natural gas in and we were um, taking the product that they were producing out and then mixing it into our, um, our, our own supply and other supply as part of a, you know, environmentally friendly fuel. You guys doing that? And it also, you guys doing like fuel ahead. hedging? We were, we were doing hedging and it was a pretty um, interesting operation and um, large operation really. Um, you know, we were, it was, I think they had, when I was there, they had 11 uh, truck stops and most of those were pumping, um, you know, between one and 2 million gallons of diesel a, a, a month mm. to commercial, you know, to trucking companies. Um, so uh, I got to, I spent 
probably four or so years in directly in that world and and in the fuel side of that business and then um transitioned into an operational role there where we were um upgrading uh truck stops the the technology that runs the fuel desk and the uh, diesel islands to include the pumps and concrete and piping and tanks and all that and um uh, spent a number of years th- doing that and all of the challenges of, of, of that world. Um, and then all within the same company, just because it was such a, the fam- privately owned family company, but very diverse in terms of the business segments and industries that it belonged to. So I got the ability to kind of jump and hop around in the different uh, pieces of the business, um, which also I, I really look back on, that phase of my life as another very um, I'm very thankful for that opportunity because I got to learn so much about business. I mean, that's really where I learned about business. If you, if you really get down to it, just because there's so many different um, industries and so many different um, demands and opportunities in each one of those, those business segments. Um, and uh so you, so I'm fond of that. So you must have been there through the like the 2008 downturn. I was, I was. Did you guys do okay on the hedging side of things, or did that kind of catch you by surprise? Um, we actually weathered that pretty well um, at the time. Uh, those truck stops, they, they, we took a pretty conservative approach um, to, to hedging and, and purchasing of, of uh, fuel and contracts. So we were positioned pretty well. And those truck stops, I don't know how first you or your audience is with those, but they, they produce cash like crazy. Just the, 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 the outflow of, or the output, I should say, of, of diesel fuel and gasoline, those high volume travel center locations, and the, the, the comm checks and the T checks and different things that are running through there to get cash, um, into the hands of truck drivers and, and different things. It's just, it's an immense amount of cash. And so um, the business cash flowed itself very well. Um, and it wasn't until later, until a couple of years later that they went through there, they went through like a delayed um, challenge. And part of it had to do with uh, downsizing um, and, and selling off some of the, the travel center locations. It put a, uh, a hit to their cash flow position, and um, then they started to to go through a, a little bit more challenging time, and and had to learn how to operate the business with uh, a little more efficiently, a uh, little little less, um, um, you know, from the seat of our pants kind of thing. Loose, yeah. So when you say cash, yeah. I mean so basically everything in the business is done at like a guaranteed margin like you wouldn't be selling your fuel at a loss for example if anything you're just working to widen the profit Uh, yeah for the most part there are some some you know high volume deals where you're you're actually selling a lot of that fuel at um cost plus Mm -hmm. margins and different things of that yeah Yeah. um 
kind of like a parts markup. I mean, the cost is what it is and you just market it from there basically. Right. Yeah. The yeah. transient business is where, you know, so just having some back, my wife's in the, the industry. And so uh, having some background in it, you could, if you own the fuel at just hypothetically two bucks and the market is three fifty, you are like, like Don saying, you're producing a lot of cash, but you also got to manage that cash because you could end up, if you're not hedged, right. You could end up being on the opposite side. Correct. The market's 250, your cost is 350. And if you put a contract together, to his point, if you put a contract together that's cost plus and they know cost is two bucks, well, then it's two bucks. You're, you're, there's no, and, and they're draining a large volume of your fuel. It could run your hedge out. Well, that's pretty good. So, Don, you go, uh, you work as a technician, go to business school, um, get turned off by the mortgage industry. Um, no offense to people who work in the mortgage industry, but that was a crazy time. Um, that's when I, oh, absolutely. That was the period yeah. I bought my first house. Um, no doc loan. It was crazy. Like I graduated from college, bought a house right away, probably had no business doing that. Um, but, uh, thanks to the craziness of that time, luckily I came out. Okay. But geez, it was, <laughs> it was definitely the wild west. And then you get into fuel hedging and running the logistics of these truck stops, transportation, it's pretty good exposure. And you're still relatively early. I mean, even today, you're still relatively early in your career, right, Don? I mean, you're... Yeah, I mean, uh, at that time, I would have been in my mid and, and late 20s. Um, I actually worked for that outfit for, um, I want to say, 13, 14 years. Uh, and, and later... Um, got exposed some, to some different um, aspects of their business and leading sales teams and um, operational side of the, of the shop um, business. And so I, I'm very fortunate. And then I got to be around just some really good business people, whether it be folks that were employed by that company or people that we had um, relationships with, um, because because of the size and scope of that outfit, you know, they just they their tentacles were all across the U.S. and we engaged um, with some really good business people. And so I had I had that um, to lean on, and I had some really good mentors that I I grabbed out of those um, business relationships and kind of kind of use those guys as people as sounding boards and coaches, career coaches to a degree. Um, and um, I still talk with a lot of those folks today and, and value their opinion, um, you know, whenever I'm in a, in a position where I might not have the answer or maybe I know the answer to the solution, but it's complex and I want to talk it out, sound it out and hear some feedback. Yeah. So, okay. So you worked in all these areas. What would you say the hardest area was to work in? Like from technician all the way through to, you know, leading a sales team? That's a great question. Um, you know, they're all hard in their, in their own way. The fuel business was so cutthroat and commodity driven that, you know, you just really had to have your, your a game on the technician side of the equation is difficult because it's demanding of your body and you're working in, um, different climates and, uh, different equipment and your, your knowledge has to be high or your ability to get uh, the, the the information you need to, to solve the problem needs to be at your fingertips. So, I, I, you know, I don't know, it'd be fair to single one out. I say they're all difficult in their own way. 
um, being a, a leader in sales, not, not necessarily being a sales guy. I'm more of an operations kind of guy. Um, you know, learning that process was um, fun. I mean, we, we grew from the Midwest, Nebraska, Kansas, Iowa um, in 2008 when um, an outfit based in Utah had some financial troubles. They, had, they were also operating um, some, some truck stops across the country to repair uh, facilities across the, the, the country that they went through a, a bankruptcy. And um, we were able to acquire their shop locations all across the country. And that put um, a, a number of challenges on us. One, it, you know, we went from being regional in scope and size to being national overnight. And, you know, that, that was issues with, we don't know who these customers are. We don't know whether they're credit worthy. We don't know um, if they don't pay us, we don't know how to go get our money where right. um, a lot of that was true and consistent in, in our normal operations. So um, number one, we had to figure out how to absorb all these locations, uh, which were, you know, triple digit growth from a, a revenue and a location perspective for us. Um, and then we needed to assimilate them into our, our program um, and, and, and our way of doing things. And I wasn't so much lead on that, but um, respecting the folks that did that job, that was a difficult job going into locations, taking them over and, um, you know, releasing the employees and rehiring them after drug screens and saying that, you know, here's the new manual, here's the way you got to do things, so on and so forth. And um, uh, I didn't bring it in. The, I didn't realize you guys did that. I mean, I know exactly who you're talking about. Um, I didn't realize, um, and we don't have to say names. That's fine. Um, that's a huge undertaking. So you guys, yeah. you guys tackled that. That's, I mean, it's hard to run a repair shop, let alone a nation national network. Hardly anybody has pulled that off even to this day, like a national network of commercial repair shops. It just isn't done because it's hard. It's very hard. Um, yeah. So yeah, we did that. We, and then, you know, to the extent that you got to bring in your own systems and then right. now, now all of a sudden you got to, got to um, know the customer in places that you've never been before. Um, right. And, and, and you've got to figure out what are you going to do from a, an, an AR perspective, accounts receivable, I mean, and credit, are you going to continue to try to run that um, at, with your own people and your own systems, or are you going to outsource that? We, we chose to outsource that and bring in a, a company to help us manage that. And, that gave us the ability to have kind of a national uh, account, if you will, across all our right. um, businesses. And so I was instrumental in putting that into place and then building a sales team out that would then be able to use that national account program and those facilities to um, go to market and, and, you know, try to capture business from fleet customers and, and local and regional, um, you know, fleet operators. That's cool. So you guys were operating, so you had your own truck stops and then you're operating uh, commercial repair facilities on the property of other companies, truck stops. Correct. And our own. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we were uh, landlord to ourselves and, and um, uh, leasey to, to others. To competitors basically. Almost. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Wow. That's cool. Jeez. I had no idea, Don, this is crazy. <laughs> So, yeah. all right. So how, how do you get from the Midwest to, to Fleetnet? 
Um, great question. It's a little bit obscure, but um, that same organization uh, in the Midwest that I worked for had a relationship, uh, a, a longstanding relationship with a, a marketing organization that um, I would describe them as a co-op um, of truck stops, convenience stores, and repair um, companies. And that particular uh, company uh, really acted, this is probably not fair to the company, but um, acted a lot like a, an Ace Hardware organization um, or, or a co-op where they, um, you know, owned the, the, the truck stop or the repair facility or both, maybe there's both on a single property, were owned by a, a family or a, a small business and they wanted um, to operate their business as they did or with some standards that, that resembled, you know, a national chain, um, but didn't necessarily have the, the resources or the, the, the fortitude to do it on their own. Um, but then also to have a, a sales and marketing arm that had national uh, presence and, and um, a feel to the customer. So that, that organization uh, was able to employ through uh, membership fees to all of those others, they employed a, a pretty sizable uh, sales team that was responsible for fuel and maintenance sales with fleets. Mm -hmm. And um, the organization that I had worked for um, had opted to uh, we had opted to make a change in the way we did that rather than doing it internally with our own people. We thought we would um, join forces with that organization, and um, you know, the two two are better than one kind of thing, and we'd be able to join our locations in with their locations and and really uh, take over the world, so to speak, and probably not the best way to say it, but um, that was the kind of design. And so um, through that opportunity, I was given a, a chance to be a leader in that organization and lead the so were, effort. So you worked for the co-op for a while. I did. Gotcha. I did. And I was, you know, trying to assimilate, um, you know, the, the shops that I had just been working for into a network of shops that were um, independent, operated um, mom and pop like shops. Um, and so there's the, the cultures were quite different. One of a more of a corporate culture and the other more of a, a family entrepreneurial kind of approach. And those at times clashed and there were challenges that you had to fight through. Um, so, so, you know, I was asked to, to step up and, and, and be someone that was going to lead those efforts on behalf of both organizations. And I took that um, opportunity and, and I was um, at that point able to work from home and travel and, and um, see these shops and try to bring them into um, more closely into a standard that would be recognized by um, a, a, a truck driver or a company that might engage them in Pennsylvania and later in Texas and later in California, but it would be all some consistency um, in the way that they were served. And that was uh, also challenging. You know, you get 
lots of um, lots of successful people in their own right that have a way of thinking that well, this is the way I I was successful and this is the way um, I want to do things. But you've got to convince people that there's a a bigger purpose and um, here's why and this is the, the way we'd like for you to do it and that's very challenging. Yeah, um, I can imagine because I mean you're trying to do essentially a you're trying to organize them into what's essentially like a large company feel and get all the synergies from a large company, but you have all these different personalities and opinions mm -hmm. to wrangle. It almost, I mean, say you have 500 of those truck stops competing against one company that runs 500 truck stops, you're at a disadvantage because you have that extra, I guess, burden of having to get everybody coordinated and on the same page. You got yeah. many. You're exactly right. Yeah. More than relationships. Yeah, you got yeah, business exactly. plans. You got relationships. All right. So, yeah. Go, Chris. But that's your first taste of working from home. Did you, did you, uh, so were you traveling suitcased all the time or were you working from home, you know, three days a week, traveling a couple of days a week or what was the environment? Um, I had been travel well traveled prior to that. So I, I knew the travel side of the equation. What I hadn't done was, and typically that would be, um, you know, be out of the office for three days, maybe a full week at a time and come back and be at the office or um, later working from home for a week to catch up on different things and do this or that. Um, but the, you're right. That's a good question. My first experience with going from an office that uh, I would say conservatively had, you know, maybe three or 400 people in it to, um, myself and my dogs uh was a dr dramatic change you um, like that or <laughs> that's I mean, right some people it on it. Yeah. yeah it was difficult at first because i didn't really know how to act i'm a i'm a guy that's driven and um competitive and because of that i i i kind of need to see people so that i can compete with them i know that sounds terrible but um and then when you took that away from me i went well no one's seen me do all this good stuff and now what? And so that and the, the, the absence of the interruptions, uh, you know, people come by your office and saying, Hey, what about this, this or that? And, um, when you're not there in front of them, they, they uh, don't always find the answer on their own, but they're more likely to try to, to go and do that right. rather than come ask you, or interrupt you. Like an interruption factory, right? Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. And so, you know, I was able to early on, I was found, I was able to do, um, you know, I kind of got the feeling that like a, an eight hour workday at a home office was like a 14 hour workday at the office. Yeah. And so I was able to be a whole lot more efficient and get more things done. But, but then also the, the those lulls in between um, where it would normally be interrupted or maybe a meeting or whatever, I didn't really at first know how to, work with that time and so it was uh challenging but i got to where i had a, a pretty good pattern i was disciplined i was up and you know i would shower and and dress just like uh when i was working from just dressed not necessarily like i was at an office but i'd get up and do the whole routine just like i was going to the office and be at my desk at 7 seven thirty. um what i enjoyed about it when i worked from home was that you know, I can largely have most, if not all of the work I needed to be done, done by three o'clock. Um, 
I was able to go and um, walk or ride a bike and pick my daughter up from school and maybe we'd you know ride down to a gas station get some candy for her or go to Dairy Queen come back home and put another hour thereabouts in, in that work and um, really still be more effective than most people are at a at an office yeah um, yeah totally so, but it took, it took a good probably six months for me to adjust to that. Um, but after I adjusted, I, I did enjoy it and I miss it today. And that's what with the pandemic or the, you know, what's with, you know, our, our business, we, we employ about today at the, the company I work with, with Fleetnet about 300 or so employees and, um, 97% of those today are remote. Really? Um, yeah, this is the pain. We're, it's remote. What, uh, what about all the big video boards on the wall and stuff? How do they? You guys have a lot. They're, they're still there, and we still watch them. The people that are here. I, I spend. Uh, I'm. I'm able to kind of bounce back and forth. I'm kind of doing. At one point, I was. It was kind of like three days uh, in the office, two days at 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 home. Now more and more, it's getting to where I'm more in the office most of the time, but I can pop a, 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 a day at home or even a, a morning at home and come into the office. And, and I enjoy that. I, I'm able to um, multitask and, and get some things done both for work and, uh, and at home. So, so, so you're there then. Uh, so you land a fleet net, you've been there for a few years now. Yeah, I'm uh yeah. So yeah, it's actually, I wasn't, I was at the outfit I was telling you about previously. I, I, one of those deals where I wasn't necessarily looking for a job when this one came about, but it was a great opportunity and I was pained uh, to make the decision that I made to, to leave the organization I was at and the people I had known for a long while. And, um, also had to kind of decide whether, I, you know, uh, at the time I was also calculating, how was I going to move my family of four, um, including myself, across the country from Nebraska to the East Coast? And uh, what was that going to be like? And um, so a lot going on and, and, and trying to figure that out at the same time that, that um, the child that I was speaking about earlier was just graduating high school. So from a timing perspective, um, you know, that lined up and my my other child's much, much younger and at the time was... You know, younger the younger they are the more easily they adapt to, to that kind of change right so, yeah so, yeah, so it, it, your daughter had to go to high school in north carolina after the move uh no my son is the one i'm speaking oh, of. He, he actually was able to wrap up his uh senior year in um in nebraska and and i would give him the choice that he could come with us or you could stick around and stick to your normal plans because i know this wasn't really in the the plans from earlier and said you know the, you might think about coming with us you can you can hang out in our house as long as you need to until you find your footing or whatnot and go to school and um so he did and he's he's actually going to graduate um in first part of january they're a little bit delayed because of this covid stuff um normally they would graduate in december but he's about to graduate from the university of north carolina um at Charlotte uh, with a finance degree and so pretty excited about that and um, but yeah my daughter was much younger there's an 11 year difference between them and um, she at the time was I think either in the second grade or just going into the second grade I'm kind of fuzzy on the math but um, 
um, like say she she adapted to like you know barely missed a beat um yeah and for him in his case he was it was all new to him and he was exploring a new world and so it was it was it was good for everybody um honestly my wife probably struggled with it the most because she didn't immediately go into the workforce and um you know daughter's going to school son's going to school and there's no i'm going to work and there's nobody around and you don't know anybody and um so the first year was pretty challenging from a, a personal perspective um but uh we made it through it and um we love we love it out here the, the weather's a whole lot different than nebraska i'm i'm miss and love nebraska and in, in its own way but out here i still have the, the seasons um they're a little bit muted certainly winter is muted um yeah more, and there's more trees out there more trees you can you, you know what's nice about north carolina is that you can especially where we're located you can be at the beach in three hours or you can be in the mountains in two and mm-hmm. um you kind of get the best of both worlds or you can you know north north carolina is well known for its waterfalls and parks and things of that nature so you can get out in nature and see a lot of things so what's the what would you say that I know you're still early overall in your career, but you got in uh, to diesel repair super early, I guess, late nineties, right? Um, yeah. So have you noticed any kind of uh, I guess seismic shifts in the industry since, since you first got in? Um, yeah. I mean, you know, the, the, the trucks have gotten much more complex than they were even when I first got in, I remember when they made the big jump um, Caterpillar did to an ACERT motor. And, um, you know, that, that was a large transition. Then they transitioned again a couple different times over a 10 or 15 year period. And ultimately the trucks are just getting more and more complex. Um, As everybody knows that trying to find technicians um, is a chore at best. Um, you know, and, and ones with, with the kind of knowledge and experience that you need are not readily available and wasn't so much workforces like changed. Wasn't so right. like that back when you started. Yeah. Right. What about, you know, um, uh, here's a question, Don, on maintenance. We've noticed that, uh, de- you know, dealers in both heavy and medium and light are going to ECM uh, regulated intervals. So for like a, a wet service or an oil change. Instead of engine hours. Yeah. Or yeah. just even it's they're actually just doing it by ECM by where they're doing sensor. Wares. Right, 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 right. So like we, we've always seen where, um, you know, like just in my personal life, we have a, we have a Jeep and we have a diesel truck and I know the diesel's ready at 11. It don't matter what the ECM is that that stuff's coming out at 11 and, um, the, the Jeep following it, it's 72 or 7,400. We're, we're dropping oil. But I recently was, uh, um, some folks were recently talking about doing strictly ECM wet services. And are you seeing the industry move toward the ECM dictates the services or are you guys still running or predicting maintenance based on hours and miles? We're predominantly in the hours and miles world. Um, I have not, that's actually new to me, um, but keep in mind my focus here at, at Fleetnet is more on the um, emergency roadside equation. We do have the, um, maintenance, uh, pre- preventative maintenance business unit within our, our walls as well. And 
they've got a, a little bit different clientele and a little bit different approach. They're downstairs um, or their empty desks are downstairs. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. And I don't subscribe to it just personally. I don't, I just recently heard it and I, I thought, well, are you guys rubbing nickels to save pennies? Like what are we doing here with, with going for ECM if we're within a couple hundred miles? Cause if you take it to an ECM level, I start, it, it's, I'd rather be ahead of it than take it all the way until the ECM says, Hey, this oil's done. Um, and I don't know if there's any, any money to save doing that. And since, uh, that, that's just my opinion on the whole thing, if for whatever it's worth, if you hear about it and hear more on it, let, uh, let us know. Yeah. That's I think what's m most interesting, this isn't new. It's to me, it's, it's always interesting to get in a, inside the head of a trucking company and understand why they have maintenance schedules that they have. And some are really good about being ahead of the game. And they understand that, that a good preventative maintenance program prevents um, unplanned repairs. And I think, I think, and it's somewhat backwards for me to say that in the role that I'm in, but I think I have a lot of respect for those organizations that, that do that. And I think it makes sense to me that I would rather um, pay now. I would rather do the pay me now and pay me later thing. Mm -hmm. Um, that way I can control it and, and I've, I've got better, um, cost controls and, and, and just, I just feel better about that and more proactive. It's something that, that, um, you know, it's just, just better controlled for lack of a whole lot of better other ways to say it. Um, then, you know, I'm on a, and we have, we have clients on both sides of the spectrum and some in the middle. And, um, you know, we go to those ones that are on the far extreme that, that don't have great maintenance programs and uh, preventive maintenance, or maybe don't have them at all. And we try to present to them why they should. And, and it's, it's hard for me to understand in a lot of ways why they, why they don't do that or why they're not pro more proactive. For you guys, it's, um, for you guys, it's almost tough because you do, like you said, the preventive maintenance side, and then you are, you oversee the emergency breakdown stuff. So the better the preventive maintenance, the fewer the emergency breakdowns, right? You get okay with that, obviously, because it, it helps your customers. But do you guys ever run into any, uh, I guess, any issues with that? Um, you know, again, we, we serve at the pleasure of our, our uh, customers and however they ask us to do that, we're going to try to do it. But, you know, personally, I, I look at some of our customers and I go, we, you would save countless millions of dollars a year if you would just tweak your maintenance program here or there. And we, we do make that uh, consultative approach to all our clients, um, but we can't make them to do make them do it, you know, and, and they may have constraints that we don't understand or, or whatever. Um, but yeah, it's times it's challenging because, because you can see what clearly what needs to be done to impact the, the customer and their um, cost position. Um, and you tell them and um, for whatever reason, they don't, they don't do it. And that's the tough part. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. Reconciling that can be a difficult, difficult in your own mind. Yeah, if you're, especially who, depending on who's responsible for the uptime or if you're responsible to keep emergency repair uh, costs to a certain threshold, maybe we're under contract with you and you're, it's, hey, don't let it go over a million, but I'm not committed to preventative maintenance. That could be a, res, uh, a bad recipe right there. Yeah, or, oh, yeah, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, please. 
I was just going to say, or uh, fleets that are operationally focused and um, and they they're not good to make their equipment available um, for maintenance and you know, the, the operations always wins out over maintenance and, you know, they got, they got that next load to run and maintenance is just going to have to wait. Well, at some point maintenance doesn't wait. It, it's going to come. And, and that's where you get back to that pay me now or pay me later thing. Yep. Truck in the middle of nowhere with your driver down and your truck down. <laughs> it's not. What you and, yeah. and then three time repair costs. <laughs> exactly. Don, uh, I know we were talking about uh, this a little bit before we hit record, but uh, how, in your view, how do you think COVID has changed the industry permanently? So, um, you know, we've read some things and we're seeing um, it impact our business as well. But, uh, you know, e-commerce and, and has really lit up, um, you know, and, and it's really been dramatic this year and even more so in the last say three months of this year um as everybody is or, or more and more i should say both consumers and um the business world is transitioning over to the um you know e-commerce model and um deliver to your door um so there's a whole lot more equipment out there that's serving that market a lot more uh, customers that are doing it. Um, the last mile and expectations yeah. high for consumers, and yeah, the, there's a lot of pressure on these logistics companies to to go faster, faster, faster. Yeah, the Amazon effect has um, put pressure on everybody. You know, they've got a great uh, customer UI and they got a great customer proposition that says we're going to try to get this to you, um, you know, in two days or less. And in some cases, the same day, and um, that's very difficult to for for anyone to execute, let alone Amazon. However, it's a lot easier when you're the, you know, the most valuable company in the world to to do that. <laughs> right. Yeah. You got a few uh, dollars that you can throw at a problem. Um, but yeah, you know that we've had a number of uh, kind of odd things that get thrown at us lately with. Um, all kind of relating to e-commerce. Um, we were talking a little bit before we, we got started here. It's, you know, we get these opportunities that involve lots of vehicles or, or assets that, you know, need some campaign done to it. And it needs to be done like yesterday. And by campaign, you're trying you mean to like a marketing campaign or? Uh, no, like a PM or an inspection That's campaign good. that they've said, strategically customers said you know these particular units um might be due an inspection you know in this time frame and we don't want to take those units out of service to do that during that time frame so we're going to preemptively um push those out or the option they have is either push those out or to do them earlier and so they'll come to us and say we want to do those earlier and and um you know, with some tight deadlines that we normally would not um, entertain, but and you, you've got to figure out how to perform for your customer as your customer wants you to perform. And so um, we've had a lot of those challenges um, as of, as of late and um, they've been fun. We've, we've been pretty successful in performing in that 
way, but also continuing to support our existing clientele, which is oh so important. If you take your eye off the ball, um, bad things can happen. And so um, just lots of pressures and, and, and challenges um, with e-commerce and Final Mile for sure. What have you guys seen? Um, you're over the vendor relations. What have you guys seen with the shops that are doing the repairs? Any permanent changes that you've noticed? Any trends because of COVID? Um, I, yes and no. I'm going to say, you know, we've been on a bend um, or, or a mission here for as long as I've been here and to some degree before in trying to get the, the industry to be more... Um, technologically advanced and, and open to using technology to solve uh, or to do business, I should say. And so we've, we've seen more people adopt that mode. Um, I do think, you know, individually, as I think about how I do business, just my own world, nothing to do with maintenance or trucking, you know, more and more um, companies that I do business with are either I'm interacting with them through computer most of the time. And so um, I think we're all adapting, changing. I've read some things that say that, that, that people are um, adapting to e-commerce and, and technology 10 years faster than they normally would have if the uh, pandemic had not happened. Yeah. Um, it's, it's difficult to really get a, a pulse on that from a, a vendor perspective because um, there's so many of them and so fragmented um, in terms of who's out there. And um, those today, I would say the environment is still such that those that don't want to adopt can hold out that the time for that is, is shrinking. Um, and, and, you know, I think time will tell, but this industry is going to be, um, it's going to have to adopt more digital and means and technology. And then, you know, I think about um, electronic or vehicles, EVs, and I think about what change that's going to bring to, to our industry. And especially in our business, there's some discussion that um, some of those vehicles are touting a million miles without a breakdown. And, um, you know, I, I, I initial thought on that is I, I laugh at it. Um, I don't know how that's ever possible, but you, you start to think about, you know, all the systems that don't exist in an electronic vehicle. You know, there is no radiator. There's no coolant system. There's no um, after treatment. There's no, technically there's not even in many of them, not even really a transmission. It's, it's all direct drive. Nice, clearly there's still tires and there's brakes and there's lights and there's things of that nature, but there, there may be something to the whole notion that the breakdown world is going to dramatically change. Um, I also think that the type of technician that we're going to be looking for, the, the training is going to be, uh, as those things get adopted, and it's not, it's not an if, but when, I think, um, yeah. you know, as they become adopted, you're now talking about dealing with a quasi-lineman rather than a technician, okay. somebody, you know, understands electric electricity in a way that um like say a, a utility lineman might 
better better understand it really well. Yeah. So. Yeah. You know, um, just on uh, just general dealerships, we're seeing uh, some uh, pickup and delivery services. Like some shops aren't. Um, are, are you seeing more mobile technicians? I mean, obviously, in emergency repair, you're going to see all of that's going to be mobile mobile technicians. But are you seeing brick and mortar shops shift to a mobile technician? Uh, platform to go to the customer. So there's not that um, engagement with the trucks being dropped off. There are, there are, um, you know, one thing that we've seen doesn't directly answer your question. I acknowledge, but one thing that we also dealt with is that, um, you know, shops are less inclined to get and, and, especially tow operators and shops that have to get inside a vehicle or have to have people ride with them. They're less inclined to do that. Um, not to say that most won't, but we've been encountered with some challenges where they said, um, you know, you got four people in this broken down unit that needs to be towed 150 miles. And uh, pre pandemic, we probably would have stuffed them in our, our wrecker. Um, we're not going to do that now. So what do you want me to do with these people? So we got to figure out those challenges and um, that's always, that's always uh, <laughs> at the time when that first happened, we go, well, what, what in the world are we going to do? Because in the, in the urban areas, you got options that are, you know, kind of publicly available, whether that be, um, you know, mass transit or Uber or Lyft or something like that. But what do you do in, um, you know, middle of Nebraska, Nebraska. At two in the morning yeah. um, where you don't see a, a, a porch light for 20 miles. Yeah, exactly. And so that creates some, some challenges that don't always have the immediate answer at, at hand. Hey, Don, my, uh, the last question I, I wanted to get to was actually about electric. And I know you're kind of touched on that, but do you think, how soon out do you think the tipping point is where we see, I guess, more electric semis purchased than non? I know right now, basically no one's buying them, right? Um, there's been a lot of hype and so forth, but what's your sense? Like, what, what are you guys seeing over there? And is this going to be a thing? Uh, I can tell you, we're seeing some of our clients purchase some today um, and put them into service. Um, and yeah, it's, I think it's going to be a thing. I don't think it's going to be, uh, as widespread so quickly that, that maybe some of some say, I think it, it's probably five years out before it's, it's, um, you know, prolific or, or maybe not fully prolific, but, but more, um, visible. But again, I, I'm seeing, customers today multiple customers purchase those and we're having to figure out how to support those. And, um, in most cases it's, you know, tow it to a dealer and then the dealer doesn't always know how to deal with it. Right. Yeah. It, we, we've been, uh, uh, talking a lot with, uh, with one of the OEMs and, um, one of the things they're convinced of is, um, basically diversity there, there's going to be, uh, electric will be a thing, but we won't see diesel go away. It'll be um, uh, kind of a mixed bag uh, because there's specific applications where it kind of has to be diesel. Or um, I guess there's a lot of work being done on diesel electric hybrids, even where the, so the diesel engine is essentially generating electricity, which then runs the motors, um, ceramic diesel engines, all, all kinds of stuff being worked on. Um, 
so we'll, we'll kind of have to see where that comes together, but, uh, for a shop uh, doing the repairs, it almost means you kind of like the lineman tech that you mentioned, Don, you got to have them and you got to have the diesel techs because, uh, it's, it's going to be uh, way, way into the future before you see diesel completely disappear. Yeah. yeah, there's no doubt. It's 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 going to be here. I don't know that it ever disappears, but um, you you will see. And I think you're right. I mean, that's that is a good way to say that there's going to be some diversity in uh, power plant and 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 that sort of thing. And we're again, we're seeing some of that today. Um, not to the degree that you know. Uh, the industry talks about, but it's there. Um, and, and these large fleets that have, um, you know, natural gas and electric and diesel and, um, you know, other power plant options, they, they've got to support those too. And so some of the challenges that they're dealing with um, are interesting, you know, because yeah. large organizations that um, have shop operations of their own and, and how do they, how do they get that information out to them? It's, it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. We got lots of challenges in front of us as we continue to, um, you know, move into the electric and, and otherwise kind of world. That's interesting. There's, there's not an infrastructure. I remember, um, gosh, in 2010, we were specking electric, um, trailers, uh, for the reefer units. We were going to save fuel, um, we were going to plug them into the warehouse until we had to dig up the ground and get another dedicated line to the building. And it was about a million dollars worth of electrical work that had to be done. And then the safety guy showed up and said, well, what if it's raining and the power strip is, you know, the, the, the rig is plugged in. And so it just, it started just dominoing out of control with safety and infrastructure issues. It, it's not just like you go buy a truck it's electric and it works. It still has to have its uh, its power, its regeneration. And through that whole, you got to keep it in town. It has to have, you know, limited, uh, limited miles. It's going to drive, et cetera. Yeah. It does seem like we're going to get to a tipping point at some point, but things like that have to be overcome where the benefits have to outweigh the cost of massive infrastructure changes like that. And we're talking like changes to the power grid to get, <laughs> Correct. what was the kind of line you guys were bringing in? Oh yeah. It was a 480. And, and then we were, so we already had double redundancy because we had an automated facility. And then we were talking about bringing in more power to support a fleet of trailers you could have seven fuel trucks sitting in your parking lot, just topping off fuel tanks before you could pay for that. I think we had a break, a tip point that it was uh, just over a year of, uh, of the fuel being close to $5 per gallon before we'd start to see it. But by then you'd start to have maintenance issues and it, we didn't even forecast staffing that power. Yeah. That's the other thing, Don, uh, you mentioned, so the million mile guarantee, which would be amazing. Right. I mean, don't get me wrong. That would be amazing. But one of the things that um, I've learned in my shorter time in the industry than you than you've had, you've got a lot more experience than me, is um, these pieces of heavy equipment, they're tearing themselves apart through their daily normal operation. There's just like all kinds of crazy stuff that just happens because of the nature of the beast. These things are massive and they're performing difficult tasks, physically difficult tasks. So we'll have to see what the reality is. They can really make it. Yeah, there's a, 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 the jury's still out, but I'm convinced that it's coming um, and we need to definitely not stick our hand, head in the sand on definitely. it. And, right. Yeah, definitely. You know. Well, Don, thank you so much for the time, for taking the time to talk to us. Uh, it was 
it was cool getting to know you better and, and hearing your story of the industry. You are clearly uh, well, uh, I guess if there's a term of well-read in the industry, but well-worked, like you seem to have done it all, which is pretty amazing and, um, and still at a relatively young age. So very impressive, Don. I appreciate it. And I uh, appreciate the, the time and being able to, to get to know you all a little bit better and, and, and tell my story. So, awesome. um, so thank you. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Don. Thanks for listening to this episode of diesel stories podcast. Be sure to subscribe and check out dieselstories.com for more episodes. Oh,